I shared with you last Sunday how after going into some detail in chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 regarding the shameless immorality of which we are all too familiar the world in which we live then Paul began to trans transition to the world of self-conscious moralism and he begins chapter 2 with therefore you have no excuse whoever you are when you judge others why it's quite simple because in passing judgment on others we are in fact condemning ourselves because we don't practice what we preach And that's basically the theme of the first 17 verses of chapter 2. The judgment of God upon the self-appointed, snooty, finger-pointing judges that are so critical about everything and anything they can correct regardless of how they do it. And so the question that I utilized last week for our focus was, as in the case of our feathered little friends that we identify by their particular markings and their auditory calls, the birds, do we exhibit the identifiable markings of a true believer? Or... And this is something on which we really need to do some serious reflection. Are we relying on faulty external markers? Are we relying on such things as church membership to get us into heaven? I shared with you the story of the church in St. Anne, Illinois that sent out letters to people that hadn't been to church in quite some time wanting to know if their name should be kept on the roll. And a lot of those people got indignant that they would even consider taking them off the roll even though they weren't physically unable to t attend. Many of you might remember Paul Benjamin Paul was a minister down at Prairie Green where Dustin Wells is now at many years ago. Paul wrote a book called The Growing Congregation. Excellent book. I got it back on my shelf if you're interested in reading it. In that book, he used a, a euphemism to describe the churches that weren't growing. And he got all kinds of negative feedback because he referred to those people as being a part of a 3 in 10 club. Get to church three times a week and give 10% of your money and everything's okay. Don't worry about anything beyond that in terms of living the Christian life. Doing that out of a feeling of compulsion Otherwise, what would our friends and neighbors think if we didn't get up and go to church? You know how strongly I feel about the importance of baptism by immersion. And with that reminder, 
There are even many believers, and I put that in quotation marks, there are many people who think that simply because they've been baptized, they can live and do whatever they want to do. That they're saved. And I'm not sure that what they were a part of was really a baptism. It might have been just a dunking underwater. Because they hadn't gotten to the point of being willing to let the old self die so that a new self could be born. Here's the problem. Back in chapter 1, Paul wrote to these Christians at Rome in verse 20 that they are really without an excuse because we were created in such a way that we really do know God. And that we do know what's right and wrong. And by claiming to be wise, we became fools. We didn't want to live by any standard. I have an associate that I met. I can't call him a friend because we don't see each other very often. We don't communicate. It's just somebody that I met and I know. He was an atheist. And he said that they were climbing this mount to prove that there was no God. And when they got to the top of the mount, they realized the Christians were already there because there was a God, a God that he didn't want to be there because he knew that if there was a God, that God had a rightful claim on how he should live. And he didn't want anybody telling him how to live. And he said, I'm not saying he said, that he knows that to be the case of many who claim to be atheists. It's that they don't want there to be a God. They don't want to live in a manner and in the manner that our Creator knew was going to be best for us. So here's my image for today. I wasn't sure how the contrast would show. But this fish is in a fishbowl in the water. This one's on the outside. It's a story of the little fish that wanted to get out of the confines of the water that was limiting its freedom of expression, inhibiting its movement. You see, here is the truth of the matter. When we rebel against God, when we refuse to live by the oracles of God, that's what Paul is going to call them in our text for today. When we fail to live like God created us to live, then we are living like fish out of water. Which, scripturally speaking, only leads to death. And in chapter 2, Paul has spoken a lot about what we are doing, about our works. And in fact, in verse 6, we're told, He will repay according to each one's deeds. So let's see what he's heading to in chapter 3. I guess I didn't put the text in there this week when I was doing the slides. Well, I have to go... 
to the book itself. From the book. Romans chapter 3. And I'm just going to read the first eight verses. Question one. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. Paul begins this chapter in dialogue with an unidentified questioner. And the first question, or maybe it should be viewed as the first objection, is does God really, does He really want us to know Him? You see, those among Paul's hearers and readers more likely than not, believed that Paul's teaching undermined God's covenant. Paul and his critics are in agreement that God chose Israel out of all the nations, that He did make a covenant with them, and He gave them circumcision as its sign and seal. But if the words Jew and circumcision are now to be radically defined, redefined, then the interlocutor asks, what, is it, what advantage is it to being a Jew? What advantage is it to being circumcised? I mean, yeah, God gave us those things, but did He really want us to know what that meant? In chapter 2, Paul's already stated pretty, pretty clearly that those things do not protect his own people from facing judgment. So in answer, Paul doesn't go back on what he has written about the real Jew and true circumcision. No, what he does is he points out the fact that being an ethnic Jew has no value in protecting one from God's judgment if you don't also keep the law completely. It doesn't mean it's not, it, that it's valuelessness. It's valueless. What it means is that the value is a different kind of value. 
It's the value of being chosen. And that, that has a responsibility rather than just security. Let me use an example. When I was teaching elementary school, and we were outside for recess, and we were getting ready to play a game, I would all usually pick two of the students to choose teams. Now, I usually chose two students who had been doing well, so there was a reward in it. But I also explained many, many times that their position of choosing teams was to try to make everybody feel important. And so, even though the whole class knew that I tended to do it, if one of those students picked somebody who normally wouldn't be picked until last, somewhere during the day I would give them an extra little treat and say thank you. Teaching them that the point of being in that position where they had a choice that they could make was a position of responsibility. Not just to get two teams picked. Not just to pick enough people so that you would have the winning team every time. But to help people feel affirmed by what they were doing. So when Paul responds, it's not so much first of all, as in some translations, as if Paul is intending to give several privileges. But it is much in every way. Because they needed to understand what it meant that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. That they were entrusted with the promises and the commands. That they had been entrusted by the time Jesus was speaking. They had actually been entrusted with the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. So in answer to the question as to whether or not God wanted them to know Him, uh, the answer is actually quite obvious. Yes, God had revealed Himself in a special way. We even refer to the Bible, the written Word of God, as special revelation. As opposed to the general revelation that God gives in creation. Indeed, to be the custodians of God's special revelation was an immensely privileged responsibility. I think that's why James, I think that's why James says, you know, it's better for some of you not to be teachers because teachers are going to be judged by a different standard. I have people come to me often and they'll, they'll give me a hypothetical. And they'll say, and it's usually about Uncle Joe or Aunt Sally, who were good people, who in many cases were very religious people, but who just understood things differently. But yet they were sincere. They were committed. They were active where they were at in worshiping and serving with other Christians. 
And I've had them ask me, do you think they're saved? And I'll say, you know, first of all, I'm glad I'm not the judge. But I can tell you this, if what they are practicing is not in line with God's Word, but they are doing the best they can to faithfully follow their understanding of God's Word, and especially they are faithfully following what somebody taught them, the burden is going to be on that teacher. Now I know that this is being broadcast live. And I'm going to tell you, I really don't care that people hear what I'm about to say. Because it's one of the things that has disturbed me about close friends of mine. Even though a particular large church and denomination does not practice baptism by immersion. They practice sprinkling. Do you know that every one of their leaders in their congregations are, are baptized by immersion? They do it for themselves and for the leadership, but they don't teach the masses that very important thing. So who's going to be responsible according to what James says? The teachers. The teachers. You see, God had revealed not only His Word, but had revealed Himself to them in personal encounters. He had established a covenant relationship that would be fulfilled in Jesus and not broken as some maintain. And that leads to the second question. Can God be trusted? That's what th verses 3 and 4 was all about. What has become of God's promise? And more important, of His faithfulness to His promise. What if some did not have the faith as in the terms that Paul had been teaching or they failed to inherit the promise as we saw last week from even Moses who wasn't able to cross the Jordan and reach the promised land. And there's a play on words in the Greek there in those verses that makes it a little more obvious than what we have in our English translations. Basically, literally, it says, if some to whom God's promises were entrusted did not respond to them in trust, will their lack of trust destroy God's trustworthiness? In other words, if God's people are unfaithful, does that necessarily mean that He is? And Paul's response is even stronger. Actually, it's more violent than is suggested by even the English translations such as not at all in the NIV or by no means in our RSV or, or certainly not in the REB or even God forbid in the authorized version. It's stronger than that. One person suggested that it could be in vernacular that we would understand. Not on your life. Not in a thousand years. 
And later when we get to chapters 9 to 11, we'll see that Paul will elaborate more on the idea that God will never, never break His covenant. His truth, His faithfulness is an a priori. In other words, we have that before we have anything else. So, what's Paul do? He quotes the Psalms. First, he quotes Psalm 116, let God be true though everyone were a liar. But then, he goes on to quote David. Those people would have known David and what David said. As a part of his sermon last Sunday, by the way, Eric shared how the reason that David was a man after God's own heart was that when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan regarding his sinfulness with his relationship with Bathsheba and what he did to Uriah, David didn't get defensive. He didn't try to come up with excuses. When Nathan said to David, David, you're the man, David repented and confessed. And basically, Psalm 51 that Paul quotes is David's word, so that you, God, will be justified in your words and prevail when people judge you. He repented. He confessed. Can God be trusted? Paul says, absolutely. And that brings us to the third and final question. If God can be trusted, is He really going to be completely impartial? Is He going to be fair? See, the next step for some would be to ask, well, doesn't Paul's teaching impugn God's justice? And perhaps the reference to God as judge in verse 4 is what led Paul to mention His justice, which is displayed in His judgments. And in this case, the objector is making the general point that our unrighteousness seems to bring out God's righteousness that much more. So why not be unrighteous? so that God can prove to be righteous. So what do we say? Should we conclude, as according to the Jewish objector, that the logic of Paul's position demands that God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? It's certainly the question that I have It's certainly the question that I have when I hear people teaching that God has determined ahead of time, He has predestined who are going to be saved and who are going to be lost. If God's already decided ahead of time who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost, how is it fair for that kind of a God to condemn those who are then lost? You see, that's why I cannot accept that teaching as biblical. I have to try to understand that kind of teaching in some way that makes sense of the love of God. 
And the problem is, is that there are many people who believe that if God is love, if God is going to be fair, then why not do whatever we want to do so that God can be that much more loving? Why wouldn't a God of love want me to be happy? I heard that not too long ago. Of course, in the conversation for that young girl, being unhappy meant accepting the fact that I was telling her she should not be living with her boyfriend since they hadn't gotten married yet. Well, why would God want me to be happy? Well, it's not that God doesn't want her to be happy. It's that He wants her marriage to have success. I've showed you this before. I'm going to show it again to you. Because it's important. Right now, in our society, this represents all of the marriages. Right now, in our society, about half of them make it. And that brings about pain. I know. Because I've been there. I've seen the pain that my children and my grandchildren go through because of conflicts that occur. But here's the problem. Let's go back to this. Couples that choose to live together and be intimate together before they are married half of them don't even get married. Out of the half that do get married half of them don't make it through the first year. Out of the half that make it through the first year, half of them don't make it beyond seven years. So is God telling me that He wants me to be chased until I and married to my wife to keep me from being happy and fulfilled? Or is he saying he wants me to have the most enjoyment in life that I can have? See, it's a matter of perspective. And the cry of the libertarians who rationalize their desire for no constraints if evil behavior causes good consequences, doesn't the end justify the means? If my sinful lifestyle helps me feel good about myself, how can it be wrong? And as we bring this to a conclusion, I think there's another thing we should note from our text today, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3. Paul was not content only to proclaim and expound the gospel 
He also argued its truth and its reasonableness. He felt compelled to defend it against misunderstanding and in misrepresentation. And whether these Jewish objections were genuine because he'd actually heard them in advance or imaginary because he believed it to be a possibility, he took them seriously and responded to them. He saw that the character of God was at stake. And so he reaffirmed God's love and God's covenant as having abiding value and God's faithfulness to His promises and God's justice as the judge and God's true glory which is promoted only by good, never by evil. So here's my challenge. You see, we too in our day we need to conclude and include that the defense of the gospel as a part of our reaching out to others is essential. We need to anticipate some of their objections to the gospel. We need to listen carefully to their problems and objections. You know what one of my pet peeves is? I'll tell you so that you don't ever... See my hair sticking up on the back of my neck because you're doing it. One of my pet peeves is trying to talk to somebody and having them obviously trying to think about how they're going to answer something I said before I even finish what I'm saying. We need to listen. Listen carefully. Look at the person's face. Because you know what? A lot of times somebody will say something, but their face indicates they really don't believe what they're saying. That's why I don't do text messages on important issues at all. I want to hear at least the voice if I can't see the face. And we need to quit using cliches. Do you really believe that God needs more angels in heaven? And yet, I have heard people and I have seen the look on the faces that they were talking to. I have heard people try to comfort people at times of death by saying, well, I guess God needed another angel in heaven and that's why He took your love to God doesn't take your loved ones, folks. That's not in the Bible. We need to get away from using cliches. We need to listen. We need to proclaim the good news of the gospel in such a way as to affirm God's goodness and further His glory. And in order to do this successfully, we need to be changed. We need to be transformed. And when Paul uses that word in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. It's the word metamorphosis. And that caterpillar has to go through a hard work to come out 
the beautiful butterfly. And we need to be serious about doing that hard work so that we can be the people God has created us to be. Let's pray.